Today, we're talking to John and Jean from S&P Global about the remarkable recent trends in application modernization. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. What are the big takeaways for 2023, Jean? I would say based on the macroeconomic environment, cost awareness and cost containment is sort of becoming higher profile and, and more of a driver for a lot of the work that we're seeing in terms of app modernization. There's no slowing down of initiatives to sort of, you know, people are expecting their infrastructure to change a lot in the next, say, five to 10 years. Um, and and there's no slowing down, even though that does mean a cost, uh, the benefits um, are proving to be, you know, in the initial projects, the benefits have proven to be worthwhile. I just had a conversation about this earlier this week with um, Puneet. He's the founder of Amberflow. And he was telling me about how we're moving towards basically the entire world being like the Amazon consumption model, right? Where you're just paying for what you're using. It's just usage-based pricing. Now, are people, when they're talking about cost containment, are they exploring entirely different models like usage-based pricing? Or is it more about like reining in the current environments and, and not overspending on, on certain things? I would say that public cloud has really changed the conversation um, because now even the hardware vendors are saying, you know, we'll, we'll situate a piece of equipment in your data center, um, but you don't have to pay for what you don't use. So pay, pay per use is a big driver of sort of cost efficiency. Some companies have a harder time than others um, adapting to that model. But the subscription model, which is what I've been hearing most about, it's not necessarily, you know, because pay-per-use requires metering technology, and that is not readily available on all kinds of equipment, and it adds a level of complexity um, that a lot of people don't want to deal with. And so what I'm seeing a lot more in terms of software services are the subscription model, an annual subscription, sort of all-you-can-eat and then you have the effort by the provider or the vendor to um, make sure that the customer is actually taking advantage of that subscription. Yeah, I think that's what Amberflow is trying to do too. Mm-hmm. Um, not yeah. to talk about them a bunch, but I'm always interested when I see new companies doing things. And some of the past guests I had had on, I saw them starting to use this product. And I was like, okay, what's this about? And then he told me about how metering, because I thought usage base was like per seat. And apparently it's not. It's like how much you use. So I was on, he taught me a lot this week on on that. And usage-based, I mean, when you talk about app modernization, that's one of the, and cloud in particular, uh, that's one of the biggest uh, motivators for that as well, because cloud can provision resources as needed. So the auto-scaling can go up and down, there can be triggers, like if you, you know, if a query hits a database, it triggers a workflow. And, you know, that's sort of really what you see in, in a lot of, like, if you go out into the cloud and you get, say, a virtual machine, you're not paying per use, you're paying per provision. You're, you're renting uh, a virtual machine. And if you don't manage it properly, if you don't manage what's running on top of it properly, it's going to end up costing a, a ton because, uh, you know, you're basically paying a pretty high rate, I mean, relatively, 
for uh, something that if you don't use it, it's the unit cost is going to be huge. So a lot of the um, modernization efforts go into better matching the demand of the application to the provisioning of the resources. And then John, how are you using this to help inform the products? Well, what type of products do you make? How do you use Gene's research? Yeah, so at S&P, we're a traditional data vendor and we supply a lot of fundamental ESG ratings data, index data out to the marketplace in addition to a lot of the research that's done by uh, our in-house staff and like the team that uh, Gene is on at 451 Research. So as a tradition, as a data vendor, traditionally, right, all distribution's been kind of done through, you know, a file-based distribution or FTP, uh, API delivery, et cetera. And that's kind of been the history in this space. Uh, the cloud has kind of, you know, really helped boost the ability to get clients new data, the same data that they were always getting, more of that data, and it's helped do that in a you know, in a managed and hosted way. Uh, clients don't need to you know no longer worry about FTP downloads or writing API calls to pull pieces of data. We can provide it through hosted instances in the cloud, and then kind of to the point, Joel, where you were going, you know, a minute ago, right? That that's where this um, usage based consumption model comes into play. Like we've been doing a lot with Snowflake over the past few years. And Snowflake is purely on a cloud compute consumption-based, uh, you know, consumption-based model. And so that's actually one of the biggest, uh, you know, for first questions clients will ask as they come on and start to take our data through Snowflake, well, how much is it going to cost me? And the, you know, the answer is always, well, it depends on how much you're going to query and how intensive your, you know, your, your, your processes are. Um, you know, and back to Gene's, you know, point, you buy a piece of, you know, of, 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 of uh, hardware and you put it into a data center or you're, you know, you, you you pay for a specific, let's say, like EC2 instance, you're, you know, limited to, you know, to what you're purchased and you have to manage it effectively. But things like, you know, like what we, with Snowflake, with scalability and computing, uh, the ability to scale on the fly and everything really help our clients, you know, manage what they're doing, you know, manage what they're doing in the cloud and and hopefully monitor costs. But the one thing I kind of always want to want to say is everybody always says cloud can, you know, uh, can be cheaper. And I'm like, yes, it can be, but you have to, you have to, stay on top of, of what you're doing. Uh, we've seen, you know, clients, you know, scale within Snowflake from, let's say like a medium sized warehouse instance to, you know, four XL warehouse instances, they leave it running. And then all of a sudden they've generated, you know, a couple thousand dollars worth of compute in a few hours. It's like, no, you've already got to run that process and, 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 and turn it back down to the smaller, you know, to the smaller instance once, you know, once you're done. Well, that's super interesting. I hadn't heard about, well, to back up, I wrote some financial software several years ago. And so I was very, very well educated in the loop at that time about how we would get data and the real time and how fresh data is, the different sources and how much it costs. It's expensive, right? Sure. But the idea that our standard reaction is to download FTPs and bat, like process them or to query APIs to pull the data over into our system. I had, This is the first time today I've heard of the... What do you do? You clone an instance of your... How do you keep the data in sync across uh, multiple machines? How does that work? Yeah, so we're constantly loading data up into our Snowflake warehouse. And then on top of our warehouse, we're creating client-facing views of the data that will refresh continually as 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 we keep refreshing the data. So you can come query a table for or, or you know a client-facing view for 
for information, you know, uh, you know, now and then come back a half an hour later and you may see, you know, completely different data within that query result. So to, you know, to help our clients manage that, right, we're providing uh, tracking tables and uh, changed, you know, uh, change logs and everything. So somebody can go in and say, oh, okay, you know, S&P's revenue number was just updated, in, you know, 45 minutes ago. Okay. So now I understand I'm going to get a different result set uh, than, than if I uh, had done this query, you know, yesterday or four hours earlier. Now, if I own S&P 500, the fund, the index, am I a customer of yours? Indirectly? Yeah. <laughs> is it the same company or is it not the well, so same that's, company? So, I mean, or? yeah. So, I mean, uh, the index, uh, so there is a division within uh, S&P Global overall, which is uh, S&P Dow Jones indices. Uh, and they are the, you know, the benchmark index division within, you know, within the company and have the, you know, have the ETFs. Um, I'm part of the market intelligence division within S&P Global, so it's not uh, so that it's not direct, but uh, indirectly there is a uh, there's the relationship, and we partner very Got closely it. with our colleagues in that division. You must get that a lot when you're at kids' soccer games or just out living your <laughs> life, because you say you work for S&P, and everybody's like, "Oh, that's the most yeah. one of the most famous you know ETFs there is." Yeah, and, and, yeah. and well, yeah, absolutely, and that's that's actually the funny thing is when you're out there and you're talking to people, "What do you do?" And I'm like, "Oh, I you know manage a market data platform for S&P." They're like, "Who?" I'm like, "Well, S&P 500." And they're like, "Oh, okay, now I get it." Yeah, I will say when you were asking about you know, some of the things to watch for in 2023. Another thing that I've been hearing in particular when uh, listening to the earnings calls of the, um, you know, the big cloud providers is AI is going to, you know, and I know that AI has been hyped a lot and with chat GPT and everything, it's people are sort of running away with themselves. But I will say the providers themselves are really prioritizing, optimizing their services and their infrastructure for building, training, uh, and implementing AI models. And that's right from the services that they have, like the end-to-end services, down to the silicon. So they're developing special CPUs and so on. And and data is, is really the feedstock of AI. And there are more tools than ever for actually... Uh, you know, in the cloud for processing those models, applying those models, and um, you know, getting insight from from the data that you know you can test and refine. Um, and so that's another trend that I I'd say we're seeing. Do you build products that do trading, or in in the sense of you know Ray Dalio, he'll build these products where he uses them inside of his company to help trade and make decisions and these you know AI trading type robots. Do you make those within, or are you just building underlying infrastructure? So basically, to to, to the point that Gene was making, like you know we have the data that is the fuel behind, let's say you know Ray Dalio's uh, you know trading engine, right? So basically saying he's feeding data in, he's right, you know, running proprietary analytics, he's back testing, right, et cetera. So, it, it, you know, and, it, and to enable those analytics or to drive artificial intelligence or machine learning, you need data to base that on top of. So, you know, for us, our focus has been around how do we get our data into better shape for clients who are going to leverage it in, you know, AI use cases or in machine learning languages. I mean, for, you know, for me, data delivery is as much of a value proposition as the data itself. If I can take something 
like an earnings call transcript or a news article or an annual report and take that from the PDF for Word document format and make that into a structured, you know, machine readable text format. I've now created something that is going to, you know, going to power, you know, somebody's sentiment engine that is, you know, who is using AI and machine learning to generate sentiment off of, off of, you know, something that was typically held in the hand and read, you know, one at a time. I've now enabled analysis across that information to the masses or in mass. That's amazing. And thank you, because when I was doing this about seven to 10 years ago, we were having to build the parsers for the news articles and then tag them and figure out which stocks were mentioned in them. And it was quite the quite the process. And now we could just subscribe to you and build on top of that. That's pretty cool. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, what's, what's also interesting is that, you know, the AI journey is not just powering our clients. I mean, we've had to do it internally as well. I'm trying to think about maybe five or so years ago, we acquired a company called Kensho and we've used Kensho to build out AI models, you know, first for search for our desktop or capital IQ pro desktop platform. And then, uh, to also, you know, enable transcription to enable the uh, tagging across uh, unstructured data and, and really a lot of cool things that, you know, we've used Kensho to solve internal problems. And now we've been able to say, okay, Hey, we built this model or we built this AI process. And now we're going to say, Hey, we can sell this to you as well. And you can have this sitting on top of your calls or, or, you know, some of your textual documents and, you know, glean insight out of it by, uh, you know, by, by reading the text, driving sentiments, et cetera. That is pretty cool. Now I'm curious from, you know, always looking to bring value to the audience. We have a unique setup here today where we're talking to somebody in product and research how do you two interface? How do those conversations go? Does John call up Gene and say, hey, I need you to research this? Or is Gene proactively researching? How does this work? Oh, it's a very good, very good question. So I'd say you know, not direct where I'm asking Gene to, to research something for me, but we're kind of looking at the themes of Gene's research. Um, That's why she was smiling. She's like, this guy doesn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> What's the uh, the piece of re- the research? The voice voice of the customer uh, survey is that? Am I saying that correct? Right, voice of the customer. So we we do a lot of end user survey research, uh, voice of the enterprise. Um, we have macroeconomic research that we publish, um, looking at trends for technology buying. Um, what is is motivating people to adopt cloud? Where priorities are organizational challenges that they're working to overcome. So we have a very broad range of survey research. I have done a lot of work on cloud pricing research. So looking at uh, how providers are not changing their prices in response to, you know, macroeconomic conditions. Are they changing them? So the interesting thing is actually um, the big providers, it's still pretty early days in terms of cloud adoption by the enterprise and uh, the big providers um, basically have enough margin um, that they are finding other ways to um, economize than raising prices. So, so they're finding other ways to sort of deal with inflation than raising their own prices because they are still very much, it's very much a, a land grab situation in terms of customers and workloads that they want to get onto their platform. So they're optimizing for long-term loyalty. But what they've been doing is they've been extending their depreciation schedules for um, their equipment. They have been working on 
you know, and doing a, a good job of, of working on um, using less energy in their data centers so that they their energy costs aren't as high. And then, of course, we've seen the, um, you know, more recently, the the layoffs and the, um, you know, sort of the um, other uh, measures that they've they've had to take as the sort of the picture continues to be uncertain. So, yes. Now, did, did you track how the rate at which they were raising prices pre-pandemic to post-pandemic? Is that how you figured out if it was increasing? So we've been looking at cloud. This is public cloud pricing in particular, which, you know, is it's public information. They they publish their price lists and we've been looking at it for over five years um, as, you know, in the division that I work in. And uh, it has been going down and down and down. Now it has plateaued, but it has not gone up like the rest of it seems like every other area of the economy. Like eggs, right? You know, it's funny, Joel, you mentioned earlier, right? We were talking about the, you know, credits, right? The usage and everything. And one thing we've seen come into play is the, you know, keep the price, you know, steady, but offer some free credits and free compute, you know, to, to maybe cover, uh, you know, a migration cost into, you know, into, into a, one of the big providers cloud environments and say, oh, you know, hey, it's going to take us a year to to move all of our infrastructure, you know, out of this data center into, you know, in, 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 into the cloud and the providers will maybe come in and say, okay, you know, we'll help you with that with, uh, you know, some, you know, some free credits to help, you know, cover the costs uh, so you're not double paying over that period of time. But also going back to Gene's research and the voice of the customer surveys and the, the information that, you know, they put out, it's great for helping us make product decisions and help put us in a direction right? Where our clients are going, right? If, you know, so, I mean, we want to make sure that if we're, you know, if our clients are fully moving into the cloud, uh, you know, as part of a digital transformation or AI modernization effort that, right, we're, that we're supporting them there, that we're not saying, you know, hey, well, you know, sorry, we're just going to continue to give you, you know, CSV files off of FTP servers. We want to make sure that we're following the trend that, you know, our data is going where our clients want to work. Well, Thank you. On behalf of developers, I'll just take, take that positioning. <laughs> One of the things that I have looked at as part of the, the work that I do is looking at how many new services are coming online from just the top three hyperscalers, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud. Um, and we track almost 4 million uh, SKUs from them now, and they're adding literally hundreds of thousands. Now, granted, those aren't you know, all completely new products. They will have a, a different, you know, code for a product in this region using this pricing model, you know, and this size uh, and this perch. But it's amazing the sort of the breakthroughs that they are having with this huge, you know, seemingly endless um, pool of compute and engineering resources, frankly, that they have, you know, that they're pushing into to new areas that the places they're going. I want to do a little shout out because I think, John, did you win some award? Best cloud-based application provider? <laughs> Tell me about that. Oh my I know. God. Your PR people, they're on point, uh, man. Oh, they, they wow. Give us all the good <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so I won Waters Technology. It was the uh, best cloud-based application provider for our uh, effort to build out Snowflake, uh, to build out this hosted and managed instance of our data that is helping our clients uh, power their workflows. And uh, yeah, I was really, uh, you know, really honored to uh, to receive it. 
Now I've got a question about modernization. I have seen that word along with digital transformation so much. What, Gene, help me. <laughs> what is modernization? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I've looked at modernization a lot and I will say it is basically adapting technology infrastructure to better serve the needs of the customer. And mostly when people talk about modernization, they're talking about legacy systems. So they're talking about the, you know, the state unemployment systems that got all jammed up during the pandemic because they were written in COBOL and nobody knew, you know, how to, how to fix them or, you know, scale them. So modernization, I mean, I would describe, it's hard, it, it's heavy lifting, it's tough work. And, and that's when you're talking about taking an application that might represent you know, the crown jewels of, of what the business is built on and saying, okay, we can no longer, it do, no longer makes sense or it makes more sense to, you know, maybe break off pieces of this monolithic, inflexible application uh, and turn them into microservices that can be adapted and um, new products can be developed um, with them much more easily because you don't have this giant, inflexible piece of software that you know, you have to tinker with very, you know, carefully to avoid making breaking changes and so on. Uh, that being said, I mean, in terms of adopting cloud, modernization is is being smart about how you not carrying over habits from uh, your on-premises data center into the cloud because it's just not going to work. You don't want to build the same sort of, you know, disorganized uh dependency bound mess in the cloud at, that you have on premises. And so uh, it, it's a combination of all those things, but basically it's adapting applications to current IT technologies in a way that is uh, that better serves the customer and, and the organization itself. Do you have an example of any of those bad habits that people try to bring over from on-prem to the cloud? Probably the biggest one is treating a virtual machine and the cloud like a server in your data center, which is you turn it on, you know, in the data center, you're paying for the management, the power and so on, but you're not paying the rent for the VM and the cloud that is being, you know, monitored, upgraded and so on by the cloud provider. So if you, if you turn it on, um, it's, it's not like you're amortizing it over you know, a period of three years, like a hardware purchase, you have to manage it carefully and turn it off when you're not using it or else you're just throwing money out the window. And that happens Probably. a lot. I know it happens a lot because people yeah, come on with tools does. that help prevent that ha from happening all the time. <laughs> yeah, we've seen it a lot with, you know, the, the term used to lift and shift. I right? used to say, well, we're going to take what's in mm -hmm. our on-prem data centers and just move it into the cloud. Exactly. But that's, you know, just not taking advantage of the you know of of the technology that the cloud provides and i've worked with a you know number of clients who have been on that modernization path and they're telling me that hey this is you know allowed me to basically you know shut down data centers for every you know division within my company centralize everything in one main you know one main uh data you know cloud hosted data center or, yeah, or cloud managed data center and be able to service all my internal divisions from one centralized area. I have, you know, they get much better governance over 
over the data that they have in their environments. They're able to, you know, focus on getting the different divisions, just the data they need, reducing waste. And then also, you know, leveraging, again, it goes back to that, you know, hosted managed service like a Snowflake, you know, those tech resources that were focused on the data loading to higher value uh, work. All right. I want to just jump in a little bit here, Gene. Okay. So at the intersection of people, culture, technology, and, and changing, and to touch on a little bit of John's point of the lift and shift. So I've got two questions. Uh, the first question is, is it better to lift and shift than to do nothing at all? I would say, I mean, based on what I've heard, at some point you're going to need to, just to stay in competition with, you know, your your peers in the market, at some point you're going to have to modernize your infrastructure. And if that means shifting and then modernizing versus, you know, modernizing as you go, there will be a short-term pain, but for a long-term gain. Yes, I 100% agree. And I did a, a couple of conversations I think about two years ago when I was trying to understand the cloud. So I found out, you know, a whole lot of information. And one of the people I had talked to was at a consultancy that helped companies move from, you know, the on-prem into the cloud. And I was surprised to find out that he said the biggest issue was the people and the culture, because the people that know the on-prem tools were different from the people that knew the cloud tools. So you couldn't just take the company and change all the people and change all their habits and processes that they had in place that they've used for decades. And that was the hardest part. And they would actually, you know, one of their services as the consultancy, and I don't even remember their name, but one of the services they had was they would help you lift and shift, but they would also go take a group of people that knew, knew uh, cloud technologies from an engineering standpoint, low-level standpoint, and have them go work on site with the other people to help train them up in their knowledge. And I thought that was pretty interesting. So when you are doing your research, and it's, you know, a lot focused from what I understand in this conversation is a lot focused on the hardware and the trends. Does people and culture and mindset changing, does that factor into your research at all? Absolutely. I would say, you know, and when you talk about app modernization, you have to sort of, if you think about it in broader terms, the whole concept of DevOps, so development teams and operations teams sort of working together on certain capabilities of, of, a, of a software or service you're providing, that is a modernization tool. I mean, it's, it's a modernization paradigm. And I think exactly what you're describing, or, organizational resistance to change is one of the big barriers. And what it takes, we found if, if it's possible to, first of all, find champions within the organization, find out where the pain points are with the current processes and go to those people and give them a, a stake in the outcome of the transition that you're proposing. So, you know, use those early wins and, and sort of pick the low-hanging fruit in terms of stuff that would naturally uh, work much better on a, on a software as a service uh, versus something that's managed and, and, you know, on infrastructure in-house or a platform service. So, you know, getting buy-in from you know, the people who, who really are running the operations is a big thing. And then also getting buy-in from leadership um, and having, you know, sort of that 
bottoms up and top down um, sort of effort to kind of move the organization forward. It's going to, it's disorienting, but if you give people a vision of, of where you're going through, you know, proofs of concept and so on, it can really uh, sort of change hearts and minds. Wait. Gene coming through with the leadership insight. That was a great, I, I was going to say that, that was, you know, that was great, you know, Gene, because I, I was going through my mind as, you know, Gene was saying that is, you know, upgrading your tech infrastructure, or, you know, or modernizing is not a sexy thing. Everybody would want to be focused on, you know, creating something new and you know, out there. But I mean, you know, making the argument that, hey, this is actually needed, right? We need to, you know, modernize. We need to move into the cloud to take advantage of the capabilities, you know, that the cloud offers. And, you know, down the road, this is what the payoff will be, right? We'll be able to, you know, run this analytical process that, you know, took a day to run, we'll be able to run it in 10 minutes, right? Or, you know, have decision-making. We'll be able to bring in additional data to help inform our decisions. We'll have better governance and controls, right? So those are the things that need to foster the argument to say, hey, you know, this is a this is a needed path that we need to go down. Well, since we got on the leadership topic, uh, I've got two leadership questions, the same question, but for two different audiences. So I'll go with... Uh, I'll go with John first. Okay. For CTOs today, maybe this is a gene question. I don't know. I'll let you guys decide. I'll ask the question, you decide. Okay. Okay. With all of your experience with the market and how it's changing, all of your research and knowledge, and John, your practitionership, if the CTOs that are listening take one thing away from this call, what should that be? Is that Gene's hand going up? Yeah. <laughs> All right. What is it, Gene? I will say that getting started is the most important thing and that there will be, you know, it is not a straight line. There are going to be um, setbacks. Uh, there are going to be, there's going to be backtracking. It's a very confusing landscape, but all learning is good learning. And and the And the sooner you get started, I mean... I'm not saying go willy-nilly into the, but I'm saying the sooner you get started, the more you're going to learn and the more you're going to be able to take those, what you've learned and, and help it and feed it into the transition that you're going through for everyone's benefit. Nice. Do you lead a team there or are you an individual contributor on a team? I'm an individual contributor. So yeah. what do you like, John Maxwell, Mel Robbins, where do you get all this leadership insight from? <laughs> I don't know. Experience. Oh, you do? <laughs> Experience, <laughs> experience. Right? It sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. So, John. Now, John, I want to. What I was going to say if, was that basically, you know, to the CTOs out there, is that you know we may be your data vendors, but we're also your partners. Talk to us. You know, work with us. I mean, we definitely want to speak with you regularly. We want to understand, you know, what you're thinking, where you're going, so we can help develop solutions together with you that are going to give you what you know, give you what you need. So. That's uh, kind of the one thing that, you know, I would definitely want to, you know, emphasize out there to the CTOs in the community. I mean, I work very closely with our CTOs internally and love talking to CTOs at our, at our client firms. VPs of engineering. So what I was going to do is I was going to say, okay, now what's the one takeaway for mid-level management, VPs of engineering, people that are running teams of teams, or what would, what would their takeaway be? Would you have different insight for them or is it the same? No, I'd say it's pretty much the same. I'd say, you know, you know we're here for you. We, we, you know, we both succeed together. Uh, so, you know, reach out to us, let us know what your pain points are. 
Um, basically, everything we've been, you know, building over the last, you know, X number of years has been focused on making our clients' lives easier, uh, helping them do, you know, do what they do better. Um, and that's so, you know, again, partner with us. We definitely want to help you on, you know, on the on the journey. It's, you know, a, a journey you don't have to go down by yourself with work with your vendors. So again, it co- all comes back to the data, right? And essentially, and, and, yeah. and, and you know, here you're talking about hard data that delivers campaign. I'll throw the shameless plug in there, right? Basically, it's it's all <laughs> yeah. it's all about getting you know everybody access to the right data to help you know inform these models. Yeah, let's plug it more clearly. So tell them what to go buy and where to go do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll put the we'll put, the, we'll put the, you know, the the marketing spin on it, right? So basically, yeah. So you know, the the data that delivers campaign that we have going on right now uh, is all around showing clients say, the solutions that we built at the uh, you know S and P Global and S and P Global Market Intelligence to help them save you know time, uh, you know, and ultimately you know money in the data discovery process. Um, you know, whether that's uh, you know our marketplace. Uh, website, which is basically our storefront to come in and learn all about the different data sets and solutions uh, that we have, including uh, Gene's research and the rest of the research at 451, uh, as well as tons of other data sets. And then even, you know, to some of the, um, you know, environments and solutions that we've built out to help you look at and understand that data, like our workbench application. And again, our, you know, solutions, whether, you know, delivered through the cloud, through Snowflake, uh, or through, um, you know, just good old FTP based, uh, type of, you know, type of deliveries. It's, you know, you know, the delivery is as much of a value proposition as the data and getting it to the right spots to power these workflows is definitely, you know, key for our clients these days. And what's the website? Where can they see these tools? Marketplace.spglobal.com is the storefront that I encourage everybody to go take a look. I want to be respectful of your hard stop. Jean, do you need to say anything else? I don't think so. Okay, Jean's awesome. So <laughs> you could just say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Boom, <laughs> she did it. We're done. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.